you know, there could be this collective ushering in of a really exciting period of reform, which, which might not yet be too late to help address things like climate crisis and these other you know, really fundamentally existential. The world has never been changing more rapidly, dislocating the ways we work, learn and live. On the Learning Future podcast, we discuss the knowledge, skills and dispositions we all need for our learning future, exploring insights with world-class educators, researchers, policymakers and leaders from across industries and across the world. Hi and welcome to the Learning Future podcast. I'm your host, Luca Parry, and it's my absolute pleasure to be speaking today with Dominic Register. Dominic is a not-for-profit executive, convener and educator and is the interim program lead for Salzburg Global Seminar, an international think tank based in Austria. He is responsible for designing, developing and implementing programs on education, conservation and the future of cities. Prior to this, he worked for the British Council for over a decade, primarily on projects connected to global citizenship education, teacher PD, education collaboration and internationalism in education. He has a Master of Arts in Chinese Studies and a Master of Arts in Education and International Development from University College London, and is also a founding member of the Executive Committee for Karanga, the Global Alliance for Social Emotional Learning and Life Skills. He keeps busy because he's also a contributing editor to Diplomatic Courier and director of Amal Alliance, and is the co-editor of two recent books, Education Disrupted, Education Reimagined, with the World Innovation Summit for Education, and... Uh, Thoughts and responses from education's front line during the COVID-19 pandemic and beyond. Oh, Dominic, such a pleasure to have you on. It's great to be here. Thank you for the invitation. So what in this remarkable world and moment we find ourselves in is something you've learnt recently? Um, the, the facts that I've been sharing most frequently, I think, over the course of the last few months is one that I learned from Darlene Opfer from RAND, the US think tank. And RAND had done some survey data relatively early on in school closure period last year during the pandemic. And what they found was that schools that had a high culture, a strong culture of teacher cooperation pre-pandemic were consistently better able to respond to the education disruption and challenges that the pandemic created. So mm. better able to support students learning, better able to support the educated community, better able to support the local community. And the survey data, it holds true whether that school is in an urban or a rural context, whether it is in a, oh, that's interesting. Um, whether it's in a blue or a red state, mm. whether it's on the edge of a city or in a city. Um, so yeah, there's really this absolute consistency about um, strong cultures of collaboration being mm. key to success during periods of disruption. And it, that feels like a really important insight that Rand had been able to develop because yeah. that's something which is replicable and scalable in multiple different contexts. And it feels like there's a really great opportunity and challenge for everyone, you know, like you, like me, everyone who's working in education reform to think about how do we help more schools create that kind of cultural shift yeah. in, in the kind of post-pandemic period so that when whatever comes next arrives, mm. they're, they're all in a better place. And it, you know, it's a, it feels like a low-cost innovation as well. So that's a, I think that's been the thing. That's it. It's, it's, it, most, yeah. it's, it's fascinating. It's almost like a, there's a fractal here, right? Which is if we take that and we upscale it from you know, a, a human system of a school to the human system of a society, Largely, we could also say, you know, the, those, you know, private public partnerships that were able to, to collaborate best 
have also dealt best with the challenges of the pandemic. So there's this idea okay. ultimately that we've, I think we've realized in this moment of disruption how interconnected we really are and actually turns out the better able to cooperate in an in a, in a educational setting, for example, but I'm sure as well in the business world, you know, the more able we have been to be anti-fragile and, and effectively to be able to continue to do our work and perhaps pivot towards something new and more transformative. Yep, the other, I totally agree with that. And the other thing I think it, it kind of connects with really interestingly is, um, you know, that idea of education for the common good or thinking about the collective rather than the individual. Yeah. And, you know, I, I have been really, I'm not sure enjoying is the right word, but really appreciating and getting into a lot of what Tony Jackson from the Asia Society has been writing about recently and his kind of ideas about you know, the education revolution needs to focus on education for the common good because education up until this point has generally been organised around ideas of um, individuality or dominance or hegemony. Interesting. And what Tony has been writing about is, you know, there's, a, there's an absolute through line um, that connects the sort of racial mindset, mindset that leads people into racist behaviour, um, racist worldview with climate denialism with antisocial responses to the pandemic and in all cases it's about forefronting what you want to do above what the common good is or what's good for the collective um so i think you know and a lot of what a lot of the convening that i was involved in last year we talked about you know, 2020 is this moment of convergent crises um, and all these different things coming together and that you know that created part of the opportunity or the impetus for you know really fundamental reform what tony i think has done really brilliantly is slightly inverted that and is looking at the root causes of all of those you know those major societal environmental public health crises coming from a very similar mindset which in itself is you know a direct consequence of the kind of, of the approaches to education that the vast majority of countries around the world operated during the 20th and, and you know first part of the 21st century and it connects with this idea of collaboration yeah. yeah and obviously from you know personal point of view and the work that you and i do together around social and emotional learning yes. it reinforces the value of those kind of social and emotional competences and skills because these are you know at the heart of you know they're, they're the kind of building blocks of effective intelligent empathetic collaboration as they yeah. are for many other um, responses so like it's a uh... It really it astounds me to think about well just all the things happening at the moment, um, but also the work that you've been doing now for a great number of years in the field of social emotional learning, uh, and my own personal journey in kind of intersecting with that world and, and meeting you for the first time in December two thousand and eighteen, if I recall, you know, really just being uh, quite, I would say, I'd be quite surprised. That as an educator, that was I hopefully like somewhat curious about the field in which I worked. I hadn't been exposed to the kind of the power and the insights of the, the world of social emotional learning or life skills or transversal skills in a powerful way in my career up to that point. So tell us a little bit about you know your really remarkable vantage point across the global ecosystem um, in terms of convening some of the best thinkers and doers from different domains in Salzburg and now virtually, at least until the post-COVID world, which I'm sure we're both welcome. 
What, what is it that you've noticed? What are the big themes and trends um, that you think, as you say, based on what 2020 has been, this converging crisis moment, you know, how do we seize the opportunity from here? And what, what ultimately, how do we, as the framing you use, build back better um, as part of bringing in a new learning paradigm? What's your reflections on everything you've learned really in the last decade and beyond um, about this moment? So I, I think there's definitely this a kind of pre-pandemic rationale um, for why, certainly in Salzburg, we'd focused a lot of our education efforts on social and emotional learning. And that, you know, that's part of the momentum that led to Kanga yeah. as well. And then there's a there's a kind of slightly adapted post-pandemic rationale for it, which I think you know is builds on everything that was true before 2020, but, but adds the kind of, I think the greatest social impetus around it, or the, the kind of social justice factor within that. So, you know, we, in Salzburg, we started to concentrate more of our education efforts on social and emotional learning from about 2017. There'd been a program in late 2016 um, that looked at measurement and assessment of SEL. And then after that, we kind of really tried to go all in on SEL because it felt like, you know, it had the potential to be one of the most important, if not the most important, education reform initiative globally. And the, the reason for that, and, and this is still true today, I think, is that the kinds of skills that social and emotional learning programs help young people and adults develop are an absolutely legitimate part of the solution to multiple different challenges that societies and economies around the world mm. are going to face. So absolutely, it's not the only solution and it's not you know magic bullet and it's not you know we must do SEL and nothing else it's there's not a zero-sum component to this but but SEL is a really legitimate part of of the solution to multiple challenges and for that reason it felt like it, it was a really compelling education reform agenda because if and I know you've heard me say this before so I'll be, be brief, but if, um, you know, if your starting point around, you know, the need for education reform is an economic analysis um, and you're looking at the skills that the workforce of tomorrow will need in order to do the kinds of jobs that won't be automated or partially outsourced to AI in the near future, then there's a ton of evidence that shows how, you know, SEL skills and behaviours and competencies are a really good thing to be investing in now because they are still part of what define us as being uniquely human because they're the things that the robots can't yet do. Separately to that, there's the mental health you know, side of it. In 2016, WHO had a report that talked about depression being the largest cause of men, of adolescent um, ill health or disability globally by 2030. That was obviously a pre-pandemic wow. trend and prediction. Yeah. You know, massively more true now. Um, there's the kind of learning crisis aspect to it and how SEL interventions have a more significant academic uplift on children growing up in different kinds of disadvantage. So whether that's poverty, whether that's post-conflict, whether it's displacement, um, multiple manifestations of disadvantage, SEL can help those young people do better at school. Um, SEL helps with identity and belonging and developing a sense of self and your own role in the world. And you know, in our more fluid, complex societies, this is a really legitimate um thing to be thinking, you know, thing to be thinking about and focusing. So all those things true pre-pandemic. Um, post-pandemic, you've got you know this kind of mental health time bomb 
potentially waiting to go off. I think um, you know, our friend Mark Sparvel at Microsoft has been talking about the um, COVID blast radius and how the full mental health effects won't necessarily be seen in classrooms for you know until two to three years after wow. schools reopen again. Mm. Um, so the, there's the kind of this this window of introducing social and emotional learning oriented reform now will you know will really help students in the in the relatively short term certainly in the midterm and in the long term future um, and then you think about you know the evidence around cooperation the sort of rand piece you think about what tony jackson and the asia society have been talking about in terms of the root causes of, of sort of mental models that have brought us into this moment of you know really complex convergent crises and it, it just all reinforces you know, the, the sort of urgency around sel there's a lot. There's so much there to unpack, Dominic. It does seem to me that even this idea of the kind of interventionist paradigm of well, let's intervene at some point. You know, I think the power of social emotional development is that it's preventionist. It's it's how do we and and as you say, the kind of the converging worlds of the economic paradigm over here and and kind of you might call the humanist paradigm over there. And the idea of really, you know, seeing those two start to overlap really significantly, so much so that we're seeing, you know, really large industry players have pay more and more attention to this, you know, the world of soft skills for, you know, our friends in business. You know, and the idea of, well, this this really is the foundation. You know, I remember the Aspen report that came out You're from a nation at, you know, to a nation at hope. Um, yeah, and it talked about, fear, yes, that's right, from a nation of fear, yeah, to a nation of hope. And the idea that social, emotional, academic learning aren't a fad, they are the fabric of learning itself. I really think that's, that's just a beautifully way to put it. It is the fabric of who we are and how potentially we create successful economies and successful societies. Not, not as a dichotomy in any sense, but actually as the only way to move forward. What do you think... You know, there's a lot of challenges, particularly right now and uh, across the globe with the pandemic, the economic impacts of that, how that's going to impact education budgets globally. What do you see as the key, key initiatives that we should not lose um, or that we should really elevate even more at this moment in time? You know, and uh, Whatever they might be, you know, the examples that might exist, you know, the lighthouses of that kind of practice that might be taking place, you know, in our world today. Kind of developing the idea of the, the sort of fundamental importance of collaboration that we're starting to see the development of, of some really interesting networks as ways of supporting and nurturing education reform. And that's, that's become a, a kind of bigger focus of, of Salzburg's work across multiple multiple sectors, but particularly in education. Um, and I think, you know, it's really interesting for Kuranga how, you know, in, in many ways that, that has evolved so that the network, which is the steering committee, is very much at the heart of what Kuranga now does and, you know, yeah. and its purpose, which is probably a diff it's different to how we envisioned it back in the autumn of 2019. Um, and the, the kind of network, the interest in networks and, you know, creating 
a safe, supportive space that allows for peer-to-peer -peer collaboration across different kinds of sector or different kinds of boundary, different geography, is, is I think, a really interesting and positive trend. So we do, we've just launched, um, with support from the Lego Foundation, an education policymakers network um, that we've been recruiting for over the last couple of months. Um, so there'll be... I forget the exact number, I think it's 20, 23 or 24 different representatives from 23 or 24 different countries participating in this, all civil servants, um, all ministers, uh, not ministers of education, but all in ministries of education with some degree of responsibility for education reform as it relates to three to 12 year olds in their country. And, and, and the purpose of the Education Policymakers Network is, is to support reform organised around this idea of a breadth of skills. So this was a, um, a concept that the Brookings Institute and Lego developed um, a couple of years ago. And it's the idea of edu you know, education can, can have five critical, can focus on the development of five critical skills domains. So you've got the, the cognitive and the physical that most education systems are focused on. But then what, what is also needed is creativity, social skills and emotional skills. And then underneath those big domains, you've got sub-skill areas. And so this, this is looking at the kind of whole child development yeah. um, initiative. And, you know, the, the, the response and the interest in the proposal has been very encouraging. We've got some really senior um, you know, vice ministers of education, senior civil servants who want to try, and as well as kind of people at an earlier stage in their career. And um, it's a three-year initiative, and I'm excited about seeing how this this group of peers who don't, you know, for whom there aren't that many international fora that are yeah. having to interact only with peers um, can develop and nurture. And it, and it's a different, you know, I love you know I love what we do with Karanga because it has more of a sort of ecosystem. Filter. It's about the ecology of SEL actors. So you've got funders, you've got academics, you've got people inside government ministries of education, you've got small NGOs, you've got INGOs, you've got UN agencies. You know, so it's a much wider um, sector, strata of education who are attracted to that. And the program with Lego is, a, is kind of a more focused thing specifically for people who are you know, in positions of influence within their ministries of education. Those, those roles are very often, you know, more anonymous deliberately than, you know, academic roles yes. are. And, you know, yeah. the, you know, you're kind of on the inside, so it's harder to, to, to voice criticism or drive reform in a public way mm. in many ways. Um, and, but, you know, but, but it, all of these people are, you know, absolutely critical to any successful reform initiative in their countries um and so yeah I'm, I'm excited about it i think um yeah i would say uh, i just want to ask you a question on this because it's something around here about catalyzing networks of change or catalyzing change networks you know the idea that it's there's inspiring grassroots social movements taking place across the world and be they you know a not-for-profit that's that's you know a team has come together around in in the global south that's creating amazing outcomes. I mean, we could list a whole number of them. Um, you know, really wonderful work. But there's something about the the kind of intersection. You know, how do you go from really you know the practice up to the policy, and then the policy back down to the practice? You know, the idea of the the kind of exchange between those spaces. I think it's just so critical. And and you're right. Often we're all talking about the need for change without having all of the right actors 
potentially there. And you know, our work at Karanga is very much about that piece of of uh, the social emotional learning global ecosystem, and you know, being able to spark collaborations, which is happen- which is continuing to happen. You know, really pleasingly so. Um, because you just don't know what you don't know and you don't know who you don't know as well. And so that's, there is this, I think, powerful role that you play um, both professionally yourself as, as one of the, the most brilliantly connected people I know in education but, and also through the work you do at Salzburg and at Karanga. So you know, what do you think, if we're having this conversation, and I hope we are having this conversation in 15 years, Dominic, what do you hope, you know, maybe in person, you know, with a delightful Australian wine perhaps um, or an Austrian beer, you could choose. But, you know, what do you hope our landscape looks like in international, in, in education internationally? What it, you know, 15 years time is a pretty, there's going to be some significant changes um, for all of us before then. How would you, how would you conceptualise the desired future of learning and future of education? That this, there's a process at the moment that lots of people are engaged in around reevaluating what what's most important about mm-hmm. education. So, so much time is given to education in the first you know, 12 to 18 years of you know, an awful lot of people on the planet's lives, so much time is spent in education. And it is that time focused on the right things that are going to lead to a happy, prosperous life for all those different people. And I think there is this, this process of, of kind of slightly recalibrating that, which is really interesting. So I hope when we talk about, you know, school in 15 years, or I, you know, my, my son is two and my daughter's six, and 15 years, Celeste will have finished school, but Arthur will be... You know, Still in, still in it, hopefully, and um, you know that their their education experience will be very different. The things that they take from it will be very different, um, to, you know, to what you and I got from our education, um, which was was sort of setting us up to do well in a particular kind of economy or a particular kind of society. Um, and I think the kind of society that the people who are just on the cusp of school now and enter into when they finish their education will hopefully be different. It'll have a slightly different set of values. Um, and, you know, this idea of the collective and the common good being more important than individual um, dominance or achievement will be, mm. um, will be more, more widely um, agreed with. But the, the other thing, of course, is that you know, obviously we, we just don't know because we're in the middle of this amazing period of disruption yeah. at the moment. And after you know any great disruption like this, there's, there's always, a, not at any point in history, there's always a huge flowering of different kinds of innovation. Um, and who knows which ones will stick and which yeah. ones you know, become, the, become sort of mainstream mm. um, and which ones slightly you know, wither on the vine or don't take that's you know that's one of the really exciting things about being able to do that the sort of ecosystem style convening with grand groups that you're bringing together a huge number of people who've got really interesting innovations that they're passionate about and how do you connect them with other innovators to try and help those ideas mm. um to, you know to develop and, and thrive in the world yeah there's there's certainly something here about the deepest question um you know what is education for you know, and is it individual economic empowerment or is it kind of collective societal flourishing 
of which economic empowerment is part. Yeah, I, 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 I it's going to be so interesting to see where every how everything falls because I think we are in the kind of corner at the moment with the pandemic, and we haven't we can't see really the track ahead of us until we come out and then perhaps get a sense of the landscape. Uh, Dominic, I want to ask you, what is one of the unanswered questions that you ponder, you know, around education? What is something that you think we still need to come to terms with or develop a deeper understanding of if we are to get to that desired future of learning? So there's, there's, I think there's something about the, the process of letting go, uh-huh. um, which, which is, is really difficult in educational reform. And it kind of it connects with some of the challenges around the political economy of education and the, the time span in which you see the return on investment, however you, mm. you want to you know, develop that return on investment idea. You, 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 you know, the, the kind of inputs or the, the environment that helps young people develop intellectually and morally and socially, you know, that happens at an earlier stage in their lives. Obviously, then you actually get to see them um, put that into practice in, in many different ways. So it, yeah. the political economy of education is is difficult and it does, you know, lend itself to more conservative approaches, I think, because yeah. you're not going to get that return on investment in a political cycle typically. And and that makes it hard to to kind of let go of things in a more radical way because, you know, it's very easy for people like us who are outside of departments of education to talk about all the new things that need to be put in and all the extra things that need to be done, you know, with all, you know, all these great, you know, lovely compelling arguments that we can (laughs) develop, but, but, but stuff also needs to be let go of to make space Mm. for those things. And, you know, and there are all the kind of cultural, um, emotional memory reasons why, you know, people people want their children to be educated in a way which is recognisably the same as they mm. were. Um, mm. and, and you know, some of I do, do think we need to we need to have a better process of, of not not forgetting, but of letting go. Um, and and that feels like a, it's it's a kind of significant reform challenge for multiple systems to grapple with. Um, and it's work that I would love to you know, through the convening that we can do in Salzburg or through the SEL oriented stuff with Karanga, if we can contribute to helping design processes that that get collective buy-in to to that idea of, of thinning the curriculum yeah. and making space for the you know for these new initiatives because we're educating for a different paradigm. We hope we're educating for a different paradigm. Yes. Uh, no. That's great. Um, you know this this insight around perhaps it's subtraction, not addition, that we need. You know, it's, all, yeah. it's omission, not inclusion. You know, of some of the, you just cannot continue to add. You know, and all teachers would say, you know, already there's there's a lot of expectations. Um, and you know, I remember the piece that you and I co-authored called "Beyond Past Paradigms," which was, you know, really the case that was made that the way that we recognise, and you said it yourself, the way that we kind of recognise what learning is is one of those crucial pillars, I think, because if we shift the recognition systems, we can have more nuanced conversations about a renewed definition of success perhaps and certainly that might be one of the one of the legacies of the pandemic is that perhaps for the first time we actually think about the other domains beyond well certainly the physical but the physical cognitive meeting the social and the emotional um, and the spiritual perhaps what's our purpose how do we contribute powerfully 
with whatever tradition or otherwise that you know you might hold. I think this, yeah, it's a really fascinating moment in our history. Because um, there are, you know, there are analogous conversations going on in other sectors mm. as well. That you know that that it feels, you know, that, that there is there there are really you know there are certain conditions that are recognizably similar to the conditions that were in Europe in the early Middle Ages that you know helped usher in the Renaissance in this great period of, of, of you know, human flourishing that, that Europe benefited from you know in, in the 14th and 15th centuries and beyond and you know to think that there might be similar conditions at a global scale mm-hmm. um, and you know education reform is one of the things that that could contribute to that right so you know you look at other social sectors, other, other public sectors, and, you know, the, the shift in many health systems over the last um, decade or so from kind of a focus on a culture of sickness to thinking about promoting a culture of health. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the, the changes that that requires. Um, and, you know, is education starting to go through something similar where you're you know, beginning to focus on the common good or the collective mm-hmm. because that's more important for the future of the planet than... Um, you know, than focusing on individual success or, you know, some, some of the new writing around um, green swans and regenerative capitalism yeah. as a kind of, or, or the circular economy and all of that, a sort of different way of thinking about how economies and, and societies by proxy um, will evolve and, um, and develop, which is, is different and more socially inclusive and um, better for the planet than the mm. 20th century model that, that you and I grew up in and that we're more yeah. familiar with. So, my kid, um, I could, as we often do, I would explore so many more of these concepts, and I'm, I'm, I hope that we will in the coming months, as usual. Uh, if you were to leave us with a take home message from, you know, as you see it unfolding uh, from where you are in the education landscape, what would that take home message be for the listeners of this podcast? Uh, and the work that they do in education, innovation, and whatever the great work it is they're up to at the moment. What do you want to leave us with? That we need more than just a kind of systemic adjustment. We're talking about a sort of system reset, I think. that It needs to be the sort of a more radical rethinking of education. And we, there is this unusual... Com, you know, convergence of, of different crises which create a bigger opportunity and a more compelling opportunity for reform and that this is a moment that, that can be seized and embraced and you know, with more collaboration, enough change actors working together and sharing and trying to advance these things without either individual or organisational ego, that, you know, there could be this collective ushering in of a really exciting period of reform, which which might not yet be too late to help address things like climate crisis and these other, you know, really fundamentally existential challenges that, that the planet is going to face over the course of this century. Mm. So this is a moment to, to be seized right? and not to be not to be timid or cautious around that. Great. I love it to be to be very bold, to care enough, uh, um, and to take charge of what is ultimately a collective responsibility. Dominic, it's always a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you for joining us for the Learning Future podcast. Thank you very much indeed. Good luck with the podcast. Thanks for listening to the Learning Future podcast. 
To find out more about our work, drop into thelearningfuture.com and follow us at Learning Future on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram. Here's to building a world of thriving learners together.